This is the recording made in the chapel of the open book under the covering title of the Pre-Roma. The subject before us during this present text is the Epistle to the Colossians. And this evening we are considering particularly Colossians 1, verse 13 onwards. It is our custom at these meetings to read a portion of scripture together. So those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to share with us, would you switch off for a little while and read with us Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. There are some things which strike you when you read this opening section of the epistle to the Hebrews that you know full well is echoing some of the thoughts we shall be looking at in Colossians. Creation is ascribed to the Son both in Colossians and in Hebrews. But there is one distinctive characteristic which should be observed and that is you cannot get away from angels when you're dealing with the epistle to the Hebrews. And the only reference to angels in Colossians is to set them aside, the worshipping of angels. When you come to the epistle to the Colossians and the Ephesians, angels are never mentioned. It's principalities, powers, thrones and dominions. It's one of the marks that we have made another step up in the scale of things to this highest of all calling. Well now we'll come to Colossians chapter 1 and continue our studies that we were looking, were considering last time. We were dealing with verse 12 onwards. Giving thanks unto the Father who has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the authority of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now it moves from that to the person himself and a peculiar reference to his position and relationship to the high dignities of glory. But before we deal with any one of these teachers, I would like you to notice the testimony of the structure because it answers a certain amount of objection that some have. What bearing has all this investigation into these high and wonderful mysteries, this probing into the things that are going to take place in some distant date, um, does it cut any ice? You may have to meet that sometime. Well, look at the way in which this subject is echoed in the practical section. Notice point by point. In chapter 1, 15 and 16, if you notice, the Creator and the emphasis upon the fact that he was the image of the invisible God. But when you turn to the echoing passage, chapter 3, verse 10, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Is that accidental? That's dealing with us. So you see, there is a link between the high glory of the Son of God, the majestic title that he's the firstborn, the glorious fact that he's the image of the invisible God, and then it looks to you and me. There's a parallel when you come to Ephesians. Because the church of the one body is actually called the fullness of him who in his turn fitteth all in all. It's an overwhelming thought to think this could be said of a company of which you or I could be a member, but nevertheless it is true. 
Then look at the next item, chapter 120. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, whether in earth or in heaven. Well, oh, that's a most marvellous sweet. Reconcile all things. But will you notice in chapter 3, verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. It doesn't say the word uh, uh, reconciliation, but it's there, isn't it? You couldn't have a company in which the, the Greek and the Jew, the barbarian, the Scythian, the bond, the free, unless there was some reconciling element, they couldn't mix. So you see, the ultimate reconciliation, which we're looking at in Colossians 1, has a particular personal bearing when we come to chapter 3. Then go back again, chapter 1, 17 and 18. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And at the end of verse 18, in all things he might have the preeminence. That emphasis. Well, when we come to chapter 3, 11, we've read the verse, but we'll read it again. But Christ is all, and in all. That sums up the idea of preeminence and the one through whom all things consist. Then coming back again to chapter 120, having made peace through the blood of his cross, leading on to or associated with the forgiveness of sins in verse 14. Or what about that practical bearing in chapter 3, verse 13? Forbearing one another and forgiving one another if any man have a quarrel against any even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And in verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your heart. So you see, all these features, high doctrine as it is in chapter 1, has a bearing in chapter 3, even down to the fact that if we have a quarrel one with another, that's not very high ground, is it? But it's a thing that may easily happen in any company or among any folk. And then finally, in chapter 122, we have this presentation in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. What's to be the answer and echo of that? Chapter 3, 9 and 12. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, well, you must have put off the old man with his deeds if you're going to be presented holy and unblameable and unreprovable. At least it looks as though in God's sight they've been put off. Well, what about your reaction to it then, in yourself? And then in verse 12, Put on, therefore, as, as the elect of God, holy, you see, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, holy and beloved, Bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. So there is a very adequate answer to any objection that might be made that we're spending our time on very unpractical things because we are dealing with these high and glorious teachings. I remember once taking a friend up on this matter and said, would you let me come home and ask your wife a few questions? He wasn't so keen about that. 
But I said, you tell me the epistles of the Ephesians isn't practical. For the time we've gone through chapters 5 and 6, you wish you hadn't asked me home, I know. And that'd be true of all of us, in many cases. So now we'll come back to Colossians 1. And verses 13 to 23 are a complete section, and they are set out at the bottom part of this chart. It won't do us any harm once more to refer to it. Because the more you've got the analysis of a, of a section, the more you understand what the Apostle is out to teach, and you're not so much likely to be led by somebody else's opinions, because this will be something of a safeguard. You might say to me, well, that's your opinion. Well, no, not exactly, friend. As I said when I was over in the United States, Christopher Columbus, as far as I know, didn't invent America. He only discovered it. I don't know whether, he, if he does know anything about it, he's very happy about it, but that's what I told him. And I haven't invented that, I've only discovered it, because you can see for yourself whether it's there or not. Shall we look? First of all, 13 and 14. We're delivered, we're translated, we are redeemed through the blood of Christ. Then look at the concluding member, verses 21 and 22. Reconciliation, and presentation through his blood. It begins and it ends on that note. Without this mediation of Christ, without the one sacrifice for sins forever, all this is wonderful talk and can never lead us anywhere except a distraction. But once this is assured that the sin question has been righteously dealt with, then we can look into these things without tremor. So we'll come back again. Letter B, verses 15 to 17. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Then you run your eye down and you find under the letter B, he is the beginning, this time in connection with the church. The firstborn from the dead. The title repeated. Then we come back again. There's creation of things in heaven and in earth. And you look right down to the bottom of this one and you have in uh, the concluding verses, words of verse 20 the reconciliation of all things in earth or in heaven. He created them. He reconciled them. He was the only one who could do either. And surely he was the only one who could do the latter. All sin, all rebellion, is ultimately directed against the Creator. And nobody can step in and say to him what he's got to do. Nobody can tell him that he must invent a way out of it, or he must provide a gospel, or he must make some move. Nobody can do that. It's the Creator alone who can come forward and say, in my own right, I extend mercy and love to those that I could condemn. It's well for us to remember that. So we've got it. Creation was from his hand. Reconciliation is from his hand too. And then it says he is before all things. And it's done as by in all things he must have the preeminence. Whether it be in the physical creation or whether it be in the new creation of spiritual things, he's first. And then we have the statement that in him all things consist. 
and he said, oh, by in him that all the fullness dwells. Well, that I think will be sufficient for the analysis. Skeletons are very necessary, but they're not very nice. Although we shouldn't be very happy if we hadn't got one, because we should be more like jellyfish than some people are at this present moment. I'm glad I say we all the time, otherwise it'd be a bit rude, wouldn't it? Now then, verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God. It's a categorical statement of scripture that no man has seen God at any time. And yet the Old Testament says that they looked upon the God of Israel. And the God of the Old Testament said that he had spoken to Moses as a man speaks to his friend face to face. But there's one passage in the record of Moses which helps you. It says, and the similitude of the Lord did he behold. God has never made himself known to any man. God has never been seen by any man. His voice has never been heard by any man. The only one that ever anybody has ever seen or heard or in any measure become acquainted with is this one. Now he's presented to us in different ways by different ways. John says, in the beginning was the Logos, the Word. Well, a Word is the only means whereby we can understand what a person is thinking. Or I won't say the only way, but one of the easiest ways. We could have a meeting, I suppose, and it might be profitable if we came. We all sat here for an hour, and we got up and went home. Might do us good. But on the other hand, God has ordained that there should be speaking, preaching, crying out, testifying, witnessing, reading. It's all revolving around the Word. And the very book we have is the Word of God. And that is the title of Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, or as the Greek text reads, God only begotten, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared it. That's how John thinks of it, as the Word. The epistle to the Hebrews has another figure. He first of all speaks about time past, when God spoke through various prophets. But he says, a change has come. In these last days he's done something else. He has spoken to us by his son. And if you notice when you were reading that passage, the word he is in italic type. So that you have to leave it out really and say, he has spoken to us by son. Well that doesn't sound quite good English, does it? And then you discover the word by is the word in. And then you also discover that a Hebrew would have no bother. Because in the Old Testament there are more passages than one where it says that God spake through or God spake in El Shaddai, God Almighty or Jehovah. God spake in all these various ways. And he spoke in this ultimate way when God was manifest in the flesh. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, that sort of glory that you associate with the only begotten of the Father. And then we have in Hebrews, after it says about spoken in Son, he is the express image of his person. Now that word person occurs once more in the epistle to the Hebrews, in chapter 11, where it says, Now faith 
is the substance of things hoped for. You couldn't say, could you, faith is the person of things hoped for, that wouldn't have any sense. But it's the same word. And we get bogged up with this, with this word person. There's any amount of people who strenuously seek to avoid having three gods, but they've got them. Because they think a person means an individual. But it isn't so. Let me give you a very rough and ready raw illustration, because no illustration can illustrate this. It's beyond us. But take it like this. You notice that we are obliged to use this chapel for the literature that we have. And I sometimes am glad to know that the word literature sounds a bit like litter. Gets me out of trouble sometimes. But we are concerned about the fact that we have to load up the seats with it sometimes. And our brother Mr. Canning is thinking many ways. And you'll see another evidence on the stairs of ways of trying to stack this away. Now supposing he said to me one day, you know, if we could chop that wall clean out down there, we should have a much more room to put our books. I said, yes, that would be fine. But I said, so far as we are concerned, we are only allowed here on sufferance. We've got no right to be here. We can't chop walls about. So I say to him, you write to Mr. Foster because he's the official user. He pays out. Well, of course, when the letter comes from him, I'm on that next committee. See, I know what's in the letter before we open it. Well, then I say to Mr. Foster, here, wait a minute. You're only the official user. You can't chop bricks about. You write to the committee of which I'm also the chairman, the fabric of the chapel. Don't you see, I'm three persons. I'm not three individuals, but I can do one thing legally without anyone questioning it that I cannot do down there. And it's taking place all the day long in everybody's life. So don't look at the word person as an individual. Divide the word up into its two parts in Latin, persona, to speak through. And it was a word used on the stage for actors. And to this very day, an actor impersonates. That's the idea. God has spoken through a mask, if you can tolerate the figure. Sometimes he spoke as though he were Elohim. Sometimes he spoke as though he were El Shaddai. Sometimes he spoke as though he were Jehovah. Sometimes he spoke as though he were Christ. Don't you see? We don't know anything about God as God. We only know him as he stooped and spoke to us through human lips, with human language, walked this very earth, suffered the contradiction of sinners, and now ascended, not without sympathy, for our own temptations and distractions. Oh, what a wonder. Don't let's argue and speculate. Let's accept the fact that the God of the Bible, Old Testament or New, walked this earth once in Galilee. When you go to the Old Testament, you discover the great central statement, and the Jews picked it out and put it first in his prayer book service in the synagogue. The Lord our God is one Lord. Then I ask you, who is the one Lord of the New Testament? Right through. Look at the unity of the Spirit. There is one Lord right in the centre. That's the Son of God. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. And so, here we have it. 
He's the image of the invisible God. That is absolutely necessary, that idea, in the ordinary everyday things of life. I don't want to go off onto the philosophy of this, but you know as well as I do, we are looking mainly at appearances. We're not looking at actualities. I don't mean to say you don't exist or I don't, but all all that you can see of me is the reflection of a light from my face or my hands or my coat. What I'm like, I don't know myself. We've never seen inside matter to see what it is composed of. We only see colour. We only feel weight. We only feel smoothness or roughness. That's all external. The matter itself is just as invisible as God himself to us. In fact, the physicist has practically demonstrated that all solid matter is a matter of vibration held in check. Aren't you glad they're held in check? Look, by him all things consist, held together. If you may use the simile, the hand of Christ is holding all the matter that he constructed and made the world. Why is it that you expect these things to be here when you come next week? Of course, in the course of ages they would collapse. But how long they last? What's holding them together? A marvellous power. You know, friends, you're sitting on what might be a volcano. You know, the seat you're sitting on's got enough energy in it to blow you to smithereens. Well, don't worry. Don't worry. You see, one atom held to another atom like that is held in such a grip that when they split the atom, as they call it, you get this fearful explosion. So the hand of Christ is holding the creation he made. And the scientist today is just doing this, just lifting his little finger like that. And when he does that, see what happens. Well, that's true of the church too. That's true of redemption. We're in the hands of the Son of God. He has said in the figure of a, a shepherd, I know my sheep. They follow me, and none shall cut them out of my hand. Aren't you glad? In creation and in redemption. That's the hand that holds. Now it's called the firstborn. <clears throat> and we might say, well that proves that he was born at some time or the other and came into existence. But you know that the word firstborn is used in the Old Testament as well as a title of dignity. When Moses was sent into the presence of Pharaoh, he said, let my firstborn go. Well, there were 70 nations at least in existence before ever Abraham was born. And yet, Israel was a firstborn. Jacob had 12 sons. But it was number 11, Joseph, who was given the coat of many colours and the double portion, the firstborn's position. It doesn't mean that you were born first. It means you have that dignity that is associated in the family of God with the first eldest, the one who is the heir. As they said, come, this is the heir, let us get it. And then you notice the word firstborn occurs again in verse 18. The firstborn from the dead. Now nobody in his senses says, well Christ never existed before that. That's impossible, because if he's the firstborn from the dead, he must have been alive before he was put to death. So the firstborn again gives him his high dignity, that's all. And when we, in the resurrection, the scripture says, this day have I begotten thee. Well, he was begotten at Bethlehem, 33 years before. And yet, this day have I begotten thee, 
So we must accept what the scripture says and not look at it as a beginning, but as a dignity, as an office. And then you will discover that is exactly what the apostle had in mind. Let's go on and see what were created by this way. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. What a statement to make. Every day we are learning something more about the wonder of the creation of which we form a part. They're exploring more and more out into the outer universe. They're not only thinking of having moons going round the earth, but they're wondering if they can get another moon to go round the, the other moon. Oh yes. And that's only on the fringe of it. Right away to almost immeasurable space, there are these great planets and stars and galaxies and so on. And it says, he made them all. He made them all, whether they're in heaven or in earth. Whether they're visible or invisible. And then it never says a single word about what we call the physical creation in this passage. It doesn't say bird and beast and fish and flower and man. No, no. Look what it says. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. That's all. That's the only reference to detail in this creation that he gives. So all that is emphasizing here in Colossians is that these mighty spiritual beings with which the church of the one body is associated all come under his control. But he created them. You see, these people were being led away by a false philosophy. And the hint of it is found in chapter 2 when it says a voluntary humility and a worshipping of angels. Verse 18. Angels. These people were being given a mix-up of Asiatic philosophy, a little bit of scripture, and some of the Old Testament reference to angels. And they were putting mediators in between themselves and God. All he said, he swept them all aside. Christ is all and in all in this company, as he ever should be. Now the, the emphasis then is not merely that he created everything visible and invisible, but he was the creator of the very principalities and powers who are associated with the church of the one body. So I think for a moment we'll just go through the references to these principalities and powers as a group. It won't do us any harm because we shall then see that they have a particular reference to our own high calling. I'll go back to Ephesians chapter 1. The sphere of our blessings is said to be in heavenly places where Christ is. And so he picks it up in verse 20. At his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. You see the words coming in again? And every name that is named. So he's extended it. Not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. So he's extended it more. In the writing about these principalities and powers in Romans the 8th chapter, there is one reference there, a very important one. End of Romans 8, verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, 
No angels, no principalities, no powers, no things present, no things to come, no height, no depth, no any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What you say? Would, would any principality and power seek to separate us? Friends, we've got to learn this, that there are some principalities and powers which are in association with Christ and uh, related to the church of the one body, and there are other principalities and powers which are at enmity and have to be put down. So let's go on, because this is a part of our own calling. So when he said in Ephesians 1, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, it's like he said in Romans 8, and if there be any other creature, he's already anticipated the objection. Well, how do you know, but perhaps round the corner, in eternity, there may be some monstrous enemy that will beat the whole lot of us. He says, if there be any other creature, or any name that is named, either in this world or that which is to come, not one of them, or all the lot together, can ever separate the believer from his law. That's good to know that it's written, isn't it? And here it says, and have put all things under his feet, all of them, principalities and powers, thrones and dominions and all names, under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. He's not head over all things yet, except in the will of God. But he's head over all things to the church. Now, so we're in anticipation of what the day will be when he's head over all things universally acknowledged as such. And then it says, this church is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Well then presently, we learn in chapter 3, that there are some principalities and powers that are keenly interested in the working out of this purpose of grace. Verse 10, to the intent that now, unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Isn't it a remarkable thought that these high dignities of heaven are learning something through us? God's dealings with this church is being used by him to teach principalities and powers. And then moving on to chapter 6 of Philippians, we find that there are some very antagonistic principalities and powers. Verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So you, you can't help but see that there are two groups of principalities and powers. There are no principalities and powers mentioned in Philippians, but in chapter 2, there is a statement which would include them when it says that Christ, who left the glory and went right down to the death of the cross, has been highly exalted, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Every knee shall bow. Every principality, power, throne, dominion, and any other creature. Are you worried about those things under the earth? You know, some people have got such funny minds that in a meeting like this, the only thing they'll be worrying about when it's all over is what are these creatures under the earth? Well, I'll anticipate it, friends. I don't know, and I'm not sure whether I care. I don't know. Nothing to do with me. All I know is that it doesn't matter where they are, in heaven or earth or beneath, one day 
every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the Old Testament name, Jehovah. It's given to him in the book of the Revelation. He was that is that is to come. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today and forever. The God of the ages is the Son of God. The image of the invisible God. And then going on with regard to this question of the principalities in Colossians. We have this statement that they're created by him. We find in chapter 2 Verse 10. Ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. He's telling the church that they're complete in him, and he's not only the head of the church, but he's the head of principality and power as well. So there's a company. The church and the principalities and powers are united together in Christ as their head. Then look, there's the opposing, opposing principalities in the same chapter. Verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So you find that there are antagonistic spiritual powers that will not let the church go right through to glory without a battle any more than the Canaanites allowed Israel to go through without opposition. So the armour of God that's provided for us is not merely a bit of display. It's that we may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Well, it's a good thing to get used to the armour then, friends, isn't it? Especially the weapon that's provided, and there's only one weapon provided for you and me, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So every meeting we hold in this chapel could be looked upon as another opportunity for exercising ourselves in the use of the sword of the Spirit. You remember how Savior used it? Three times over when he was tempted, he did nothing else. No exhibition of almighty power, no miracle. He did what you and I can do. Thanks to the Son of God. He did just exactly what you and I can do. You can meet him by saying, it is written. And when he comes at you, don't say, hmm. I better think of something else. It is written again. And if it comes a third time, it is written again. Keep on at it. It's the only weapon God has given us. And he can't stand too many blows from it. Three times and he went. I don't know how many times he may have to cover it up, but it's the same principle. So, here we have in Colossians that he created the all. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. Now it turns from the creation to the church. But notice, he turns from the creation of dignity, principalities and powers, to the church, which is the fullness of him. And they are associated with these dignities. In fact, in Christ, they're even far above them. And he is the head of the body, the church. That's a revelation found in Ephesians. It's echoed again in Colossians. And the glorious em emphasis on Christ, the head, is brought out again in chapter 2, in a very practical way. He says in verse 18, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility. It's very difficult to get to the bottom of these things, but we know there is such a thing as a mock humility, and worshipping of angels, 
course, it's a lovely thing to have true meekness and humility. We, we, we are certainly the ones who should have it. But there's no pleasing to God when we're shuffling our feet on the mat when he says, come in, come in. Oh, no. When we say, oh, Lord, I'm not worthy. I, I, wouldn't, think of, I wouldn't think of praying to Christ. Oh, I'll just adopt some angel or the other and let him do it for me. Oh, no, no. We have access. Boldness of access by reason of that finished work and by reason of that saviour we have. So he says, no being of voluntary in humility and worshipping angels and intruding into those things which he hath not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. All this humility is on the surface. He's vainly puffed up at the very self same time that he's a voluntary humble person. Look at the last verse. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in all in will worship, will worship, voluntary humility. And humility, here it comes again. What humble people they are. I reckon old Uriah Heath would get on with this, not alright, but he was humble, do you remember, don't you? Oh, he was so humble that you wouldn't like to shake hands with a man. He says, you know, I am humble and my father was humble and we're all humble. Oh, what a villain he was. Well, here they are. This blessed, wonderful word, humility, being dragged in the mud and neglecting the body. Oh, yes. They go without this and they go without that. You see how pious they are. And then it sums it up. Not in any honour, say to the satisfying of the flesh. Now, perhaps you'd like to know this, or I think you ought to know this, that that word satisfying is the same word that gives us the word free robot. You'll either have the fullness, which is yours in Christ, or you'll go about some way of manufacturing a false one for yourself. You'll be satisfied the flesh with the very moment you're cringing and wringing your hands and saying how humble you are, and yet you're puffing yourself up. Oh, let's have the real thing, friends, and set this awful thing aside. Well, now, I didn't get to the, the reason why I came to Colossians 2. So, what is the corrective against all this? Verse 19, and not holding the head. That's it. As long as you hold Christ as the head and understand what the head means, all these other things will have no place. And not holding the head from which all the body, by joints, and then having nourishment ministered and knit together, increases with the increase of God. So the holding of the head is vital. Just to say that it's vital to you. Some time ago when I was in Norwich, I think I mentioned, I heard the most fantastic piece of interpretation I think I met yet. Somebody spoke about the overcomers in the book of the Revelation. They were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. And the lady said, oh no, she said, that means that we have believed Christ and he has become our head, so we've lost our own. I said, I've heard of people losing their heads before, I never knew that next to See? That was a fantastic interpretation, wouldn't it? But you see, there's only one head for us. Christ. And as long as we hold the head, and all the members fitly joined together, we're a match for the evil one. But as sure as we let go of that, we're exposing ourselves, and we'll be cheated, as it says here, of our reward. Well, then it goes on to say, 
Colossians 1, verse 18. Not only is the head of the body, the church, is the beginning. Well, it's already been here. All the crazy was here long before he came at Bethlehem. He was here in Genesis 1. You say, how do you know that? Well, I don't find it in Genesis 1, but I find it in the book of the Revelation. I'll wait till I've read the whole Bible before I read this. But still, we'll anticipate that and look for it ourselves. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And now we find he's the beginning in the church. That is to say he's the origin. It doesn't mean to say that Christ was the first member of the church. He was outside the church altogether. He created it. He was the beginning of the creation of God. He's the beginning of the church. He's the firstborn of every creature. He's the firstborn from the dead. That in all things, in heaven or earth, visible or invisible, he may have the preeminence. It's very fine to see that John the Baptist, who went before him as a forerunner, he was conscious of this, wasn't he? He said, he must increase, I must decrease. He must have the preeminence, I must go. And he was one of those preachers who was so successful that he lost most of his followers. You remember? He preached all his congregation away. But the more he pointed to the Lamb of God, his followers began following him. So he was very unsuccessful in the eyes of men, but gloriously successful in the eyes of the Lord. Then we get in verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. That's our word, please, over. It's a little bit of a puzzle to know whether the word the Father is only in italics, you see, is intended or not, because you don't read uh, any reference to the Father in 18, 17, 16. You've got to go right back to verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father. And it's possible that we should get the truth of it if we just let it be impersonal and say it was well-pleasing that in him all the fullness should dwell. All the fullness. That's the one reference. Now, I think we ought to have the second reference to the pre-Roma in Colossians, and that is in chapter 2. In verse 8, he commences a word of warning. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. That's parallel with not holding the head, not after Christ. For in him, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now that's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? You could understand if it said, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead and left it there. But in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily wise. There was a reason in the mind and purpose of God why, do you notice the emphasis in, in, in Hebrews? He was made a little lower than the angels. He laid not hold upon angels. 
But seeing that the children were partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same. Hebrews 10, a body has thou prepared me. John 1.14, the word was made flesh. There was some reason, compelling reason, that God should pass by spirits. Our usual thought is that we are a low order because we are like the highest order of the animal world. And the angels and the principalities and powers, they are pure spirits and they're very much greater, very much more refined, very much higher, very much better. Well, they may be. But God passed them all by. God never put the fullness of the Godhead into any archangel or principality or power. He passed right by. Put it into flesh and blood. And yet flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We must all be changed and have a spiritual body. So I'm anticipating the problem we shall have to attempt to settle when we reach Colossians 2. But that won't be next Thursday, will it? The rate we're going. Well now we'll go just for a few more verses to get to the conclusion of this section down in verse 21-22. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, how wonderful the apostle could interchange a mighty person, a mighty being, who could call creation into existence, who could uphold all things by the word of his power, by whom all things consist and speak about the shedding of his blood in the very next verse. This is a strange person, isn't it? This is man, and yet all the faculties and all the peculiarities that we associate with God. And so we're warned that confessedly great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Here he is. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile. Now, all things here refers back to what we've just read. Not all things universally, but all these things. All these things that are yet going to acknowledge him. Reconcile the principalities, the powers, the thrones, dominions, as well as the church and the body, a reconciled group. That's the ultimate reconciliation in the scripture. And it's right that it should be. Because you see, if we went to heaven, and the principalities and powers were all unreconciled so far as we're concerned, we'd have rather a bad time of it, wouldn't we? But we need have no fear. We're all perfectly at one, already, in the purpose of God. So we're coming down to a word which will lead us to that thought in verse 22, but we'll get there in the right order. Reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. See, it's a heart back to verse 16. He created all things in heaven and the light in earth. And then he turns to them, because they are not included in that verse. It's, and you. Of course, if all things in earth and heaven included ourselves, well, he wouldn't then be able to say, and you, as though you were something extra. So the first reference is the the all things in heaven and earth are the all things that have been enumerated in the verses before. Now he turns to the other group, the church, made up of human beings like ourselves, and says, and you, that were sometime alienated 
and enemy in your mind by wicked works. Yet now hath he reconciled. So there's a complete reconciliation. From top to bottom in this high sphere of our destiny, a completely reconciled group. In the body of his flesh. So it not only speaks about his blood, it speaks about his flesh. In the very same context that it speaks about him being the image of the invisible God and the creator of all things in heaven and earth. Just the same as in Hebrews. In Hebrews 1, Thou Lord in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of thy hands. And then in chapter 2, because the children were partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same. Same one. Seems almost impossible to say that a creator became man. But I don't see how you can read these verses without realising that it's true. One of the things, of course, which has made it difficult for some of us is the creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Well, I cannot believe that's found in Scripture. I do not find in Scripture that the Father is the creator of heaven and earth. I find in Scripture that the Son is the creator of heaven and earth. And when I see that, it's so overwhelmingly wonderful to think that that one who created sun, moon and stars and man was the one who in fullness of time scooped. Why, if he'd come in all the glory of an angel, it would have been a condescension, wouldn't it? And yet, he walked the streets, and they said, he's a man that's a Jew. That's all. Just a man that's a Jew. It's almost too wonderful to believe, isn't it? But if you want a definition of grace, friends, that's one of them. Too good to be true, if God hasn't said it. So it says, in the body of his flesh, and every I stopped too quickly, didn't I? The flesh is the veil. When the veil of the temple was raised in twain, it says, the veil, that is to say, his flesh. If Christ had never died, that perfect life would have condemned us all the more. But the life was sacrificed for us. The veil was ripped. The flesh, which was his veil, the veil which was his flesh was rent, and access was made through him. So we have to add the words, through death. In the body of his flesh, through death. Hebrews says the same, that through death he might destroy him. But at the power of death, that is the devil. Going over the same ground from two points of view. Now we come to a presentation. To present you, holy, and unblameable, and unreprovable, in his sight. We may have to go into this a little bit next time when we begin our study. This presentation is a wonderful prospect, isn't it? You're going to be presented at court, friends, but not the court of an earthly monarch, but at the court of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And just as we read in Philippians, in Ephesians, that we are to be holy, and without blemish. That was God's intention. So it says they are holy and unblameable and unreprovable. And that extends it further. There's another presentation in this very chapter. Verse 28. Whom we preach, 
warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So the Lord is going to present us perfect and then Paul says, and I want you too and I'm warning you. So there's a different aspect. Two different ways in which the presentation is spoken of. So I think we'll leave that then. You may say, well, there's another five minutes to go. Well, what's five minutes, friends? We can get so much truth at one time that it may push some truth out, friends. And I have a feeling that we've been looking at such wonderful revelation of God's love and purpose and grace that it'd be wise if we just stop now. I said, now, all right, let's, let's take that in. Let's think it over. Don't let's cram in the last few minutes this reference to a presentation that is yet to come, of which we're going to form a most blessed part. And maybe by his mercy, realise how this glorious high truth is purposely intermingled, as you see by the chart, with our own relationships one to another. Don't you see how in the chapter 1, you have been forgiven, all things, by the blood of Christ. And then in chapter 3, you've had a quarrel with somebody, and you won't forgive him. You couldn't do it, could you, if you had these things in your heart. You couldn't help yourself. Well, that's the way in which this should be balanced over and over and over again. So may the Lord grant that as we go through this mighty epistle, and as you friends who are listening to this recording, perhaps at the very ends of the earth, oh, what a wonderful thing to think that's scattered about this land of ours and the various other lands of the earth. There are those members of the body of Christ who own Christ as head, who realize that their destiny is indeed far above principality and power, and they are looking forward to a presentation which is impossible for us to describe, but which we can say in the language of one queen who was presented in the court of one king, she said, the half was not told me at the Queen of Sheba. So may the Lord impress these wonderful truths upon our hearts and bring them out in lives that will in some measure be worthy of such a calling.